Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 529th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg. And for those of you tuning in, this episode is being recorded at Chapman University, where I'm a trustee professor in front of an audience of film students. When people look back at film in 2023, most, I think, will talk about Barbenheimer. But something equally notable, I believe, was the number of talented and cool female filmmakers whose films kicked absolute ass critically and or commercially during the year. Among them, Greta Gerwig, Ava DuVernay, Emerald Fennell, Sofia Coppola, Justine Trier, Kelly Fremont Craig, Chloe Dumont, Nicole Holofsener, Emma Seligman, A.V. Rockwell, Maggie Betts, Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli, and my guest today, a 35-year-old Korean-Canadian playwright-turned-filmmaker whose largely autobiographical feature directorial debut, Past Lives, is now nominated for the Best Picture Oscar, and whose script for it has brought her an Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Filmmaker Magazine called Past Lives as confident as filmmaking debuts come, while the Washington Post described her as a supremely confident filmmaker of exhilarating artistic promise who has made a quietly spectacular writing-directing debut. She is the present, she is the future, and we are privileged to say she is here with us today. Would you please join me in welcoming to the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast and to Chapman University, Ms. Celine Song. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming to Chapman. Thank you for having me. I can't believe so many of you guys are here. It's so amazing. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's do your origin story if we can. Where were you born and raised, which I know is a multifaceted answer, and what did your folks do for a living? Um, so uh, my father uh, was uh, a screenwriter and a filmmaker and a film director back in Korea. And uh, my mother was an illustrator, uh, graphic designer. And I feel like the, but they were doing those work, doing that work back in Korea. Where you were born in? Where I was born. And I was uh, raised there until like 12, 13. And then I moved to Canada. And I 
uh, grew up there for about 12 or something years. And then in uh, 2012, mm-hmm. uh, I moved to 2011, actually. 2011, I moved to uh, New York City to pursue my dream as a playwright. I'm going to stop you there yeah. because we'll get into all of that. But how early on did you display an interest in a talent for writing? I think it started pretty early on, right? Well, I think that when I was like very, very young, like seven or something, I think I wrote a poem about how uh, a spider uh, eating a butterfly is very sad, but also (laughs) the spider has to eat. Right. That's right. Very profound. And I, which I think is like at the heart to me of uh, everything I write, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I really believe. Uh, and I think that from there, I feel like the first time I wrote a play is uh, I was pretty nerdy. I'm still pretty nerdy. Um, and I went to, uh, in my high school, there was a Latin club. And as a part of Latin club, we used to go to classics conference. And one of the the competitions that you do at a classics conference where you uh, basically go as your uh, as your high school and you compete with other high schools, t- Latin clubs on various nerdy things. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that uh, we competed on was uh, was a play, playwriting competition mm-hmm. where we were basically asked to adapt to one of the ancient Greek or Roman myths. And uh, I wrote a play about Prometheus, classic. Um, and then I think that that was the first time I wrote a play. Yeah. But I went to college for, uh, psychology and I minored in philosophy. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were not born Celine Song. When and why did that become your name, Celine Song? Oh, uh, when I immigrated, when I immigrated, my name went from Hayoung Song, mm-hmm. Song Hayoung, mm-hmm. in Korean, the song, song comes first to, uh, uh, Celine Song. And why Celine? Well, because it, it was a name that my whole family liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> was there also, I heard, again, maybe it's nonsense, but yeah. I mean, there is a poster that we see yes. in Past Lives. Mm-hmm. What is that poster of? Well, it's a French, it's a French film. Yes. So, I mean, there's, there's a bit of a debate about it. It's okay. like, there is a question. I remember it, that my name is sort of, uh, connected to Celine Dion, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was from the French film. And that, yeah, Celine and Julie go boating. Yeah. Uh, okay, so 2011, you come to New York and start at Columbia, mm-hmm. where you're going for an MFA in playwriting. As you started there, what was the like ultimate dream? A, a career as a playwright in New York? Yes, a p- career as a playwright in New York City, yeah. yeah. And how... Just because this is a question for many aspiring artists, how did your folks feel about that path? Well, I think because my parents are both artists, mm-hmm. for them, it was not such a uh, wild idea. Right. And I think that I had an extraordinary amount of support around that and also a lot of understanding, which I usually call, like, it's my version of a, what is it, uh, where your, your parents give you a ton of money? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, what is that called? Uh Trust fund. Just trust yes. fund. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, the audios. Yeah. So I, I would you. joke that it would be my version of a trust, trust fund. fund. right. Because it would be that it's like sometimes it's a matter of like them, my parents understanding what Broadway is versus right. what off-Broadway is right. versus what a TV show is. Versus, right. you know, And what it's like to work in these places because I have freelance artists as parents. Right. Yeah. So those years at Columbia, you have said that 
I was very much made into an artist at Columbia, close quote. You've talked about a few specific professors there who really made it, I think, particularly special for you. Who were they? What was their kind of background? And is that why your path sort of resembled theirs or was that just coincidental? Well, I think that uh, the teachers at my school that I uh, admire, that I learned so much from is, uh, first of all, I would say Chuck Mee, who is a um, uh, experimental playwright who made so much of his, a lot of his work in the 80s and the 90s. And uh, he was somebody who taught me something that I think was really hard for everyone to learn. And I think that it's it's hard for all of us to re- learn until we have learned it. And only way to learn this particular lesson is to... Uh, get our butts kicked in a way. And what he used to say is that he said, you actually can't uh, write something so that uh, a theater likes it. You cannot write something so that people with power and money to make it happen likes it. The only thing that you can do is to write something that you yourself are so freaking excited about. So if I am the number one fan of the thing that I'm writing, that thing is going to be something... Uh, that somebody likes Mm -hmm. uh, in some way, as long as you yourself are not an alien. So what he believed is that like, well, if you're a human being and as a human being, you're, you love what you're writing, you, the chance is that you're going to find somebody else who is also a human being, who's going to like the thing that you wrote. So that was one of the two. Who was the that other? That was one of the one. The other professor is Anne Bogart. Okay. And Anne Bogart is sort of the person who, uh, she's the uh, theater uh, director uh, professor, and she sort of taught me everything I know about time and space because she understood how time and space uh, works in theater, which is that you can really do uh, so little to uh, shift the perspective of the audience. So, for example, something that she would, would talk about is in theater, you know, all I have to do to turn this stage into Mars is to maybe change the light a little bit to red. And then one of us should say, so today on Mars, today I woke up in Mars and I'm here I am, right? <laughs> That's all you need to do to turn this stage into Mars. So something that she would talk about often is that, well, the audience will see what the actor sees, right? Mm-hmm. And I really think that, I think about that uh, all the time because that's the fundamental part of any kind of directing actors or actors. So for example, in past lives, when... Um, Hesong and Nora see each other for the first time in 24 years, right? And they're standing in in the Madison Square Park, staring at each other, and they're supposed to stare at each other like they're they're a ghost, right? We, as the audience here, have been encountering them, you know, and you guys don't miss these two characters, but by watching these two characters stare at each other like they miss the hell out of each other, even they're in the same city. I think that what that does is that then the whole audience will come along on the emotional journey of these two actors looking at each other like what the story is about, right? right? So I think that that is always the fundamental thing uh, for it, where it's like, no, you don't, you know, uh, do you guys study uh, uh, like uh, Iliad? And things like that. Yeah, yeah. So you know how like the the Helen of Troy is the most beautiful woman in the world. And in theater, and I think this is true of everywhere, of all acting, that uh, to cast Helen of Troy, 
you don't actually need to cast the most beautiful woman in the world. Because what does that even mean to cast the most beautiful woman in the world? But what you can do is to cast an actress and every single person who is uh, interacting with her, who is acting with her, who sees her on stage, all of them have to look at her like she's the most beautiful woman in the world. And that woman becomes, no matter how she looks, right? Like she's the most beautiful woman in the world. So the story is going to live in the way that the actor uh, is looking. It's, it's, in, it's in the gaze of the actor. Yeah. Right. So that was something that Andrew Bogart taught Interesting. us. Interesting. Yeah. So these, so you start there in 2011 mm-hmm. at Columbia. You graduate in 2014. But in the middle of that run, I guess, I don't know if it was a summer opportunity or how this came about. You, uh, you'd love for you to share. But as will ring a bell for people who have seen past lives, you go off to a kind of a writer's workshop program, right? Um, what exactly was that? And in your case, it was with a playwright who everybody at least should know, and I'll leave the rest to you. Yeah, I uh, went to the Edward Albee Foundation, and uh, but it was one of the many residencies that I went to. I went to, uh, there's McDowell, there's Yaddo. There are a lot of artist residencies that we could go to because part of living in New York City and not having a lot of room in your apartment is that you know, any chance you get, get to have concentrated time in a beautiful nature, you we would take. And also like, so I would apply to that and uh, I would go to, I think that's how I usually spent most of the summers going to these artist residencies. Um And then, yeah. So that one would have been in 2012 and it was particularly consequential, not just because you're working with Mr. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and uh, Zoo Story and all these things. But again, if you've seen Past Lives, you might not be surprised to learn. (laughs) That I met my husband. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got Um, it. (laughs) Now, and he was also there as a writer. Yeah. um, You graduate again in 2014 and go out into the big bad world of New York theater. But, you know, some people are trying to write for Broadway. Some people are trying to, you know, they they have a kind of a commercial driven mindset um, for some people. For you though, like these instructors who had been such key mentors, it seems you were interested in experimental theater. What is the life of a a writer for experimental theater um, like in New York, as you found in those early years out of school? Well, I think that once you graduate from your graduate school for the arts, I think there is a very uh, funny reality that we uh, run into, which is that actually uh, nobody's waiting for your assignment to be done, right? In the real world. In the real world, uh, there is actually no structure at all. So every day you just feel like a bum, Right. You just feel like, you just feel like, what did I, what am I doing today? And you're like, well, you don't have an assignment. You don't have to, you don't have a show, play to show. You don't have to do any writing. No one's asking you to write any plays. And in fact, they prefer if you didn't write a play, so they don't have to read it. Right. <laughs> so I think that there is a funny kind of a complete a disappearing of the structure of your schooling that um, is completely shocking. And uh, I think that, I don't know if it was true that uh, I was turning away from something commercial. There was just no path towards the commercial because the people who are working on the commercial were already people who were already there, 
Right. So part of being a younger person who is entering the industry is that you have to, um, there's maybe room for like five commercial things that's going to go on Broadway. And those things are being done by people who are, uh, you know, Tony winning, you know, people in their 60s. So you're not going to show up there and be like, I would like one of those jobs anyway. So I think that the only hope you have is for, um, I was applying to everything. I was writing everything. And I think some of it is about just trying to uh, keep feeling like a writer. So you are a, or in those days even were a good self-starter. You could get yourself to what it, did you schedule it? Like I'm going to treat it like a nine to five or something. How did you, had you wind up as productive as you were, which I'm going to talk about next, but just you were pretty for a good, better part of a decade, turning out a lot of work. Um, I know a lot of, uh, I've, a lot of my friends are able to sort of structure their days into a nine to five. I am not one of them. <laughs> um, I think that uh, my processes, and I think that this is sort of very important, which is that uh, we all have to accept the process that we have. And the only thing that matters is that it does result in uh, something that get that gets made. So it kind of doesn't matter if your process is not glamorous, because my process is certainly not glamorous. It it my process is more like months and months of procrastination, and then like one month of demonic writing, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so I will sort of sit around. <laughs> watching reality TV, doing very little, hanging out with friends, like getting dinner and getting lunch and just really wasting my time for like five months. And then one thing- finding inspiration, right? No, I wouldn't even lie about that. I would just be like, (laughs) no, no, I'm just living a very, um, very like just do just a woman about town kind of <laughs> kind of existence for however long it takes until the guilt of not having written <laughs> is so strong <laughs> that it gets me in front of my laptop. Right. And the thing is that once like, but then uh, the way that my process does uh, result in something is that uh, in those five months, I'm tinkering with something that's about like, somewhere between five to 10 pages of the new thing that I'll eventually write. And I don't know what it is yet, but I'm just working on just like five pages of dialogue that I'm pretending to be looking at for like five months. (laughs) And then I think that usually, um, yes, the guilt is a bit of a joke, but the guilt is something or the deadline that I have just set for myself, which is that like, I just need to finish it before I go and do this or something. And then uh, whatever it is, it does get me to crack the thing that is the five to 10 pages. And then from there, I am able to uh, write in a demon, demon state, which is that I become kind of like not eating, not sleeping, uh, fiend <laughs> who is in front of a laptop just just going at it until it's done right and it usually takes about like a month yeah i want to mention the names of a few of the um productions that you made during those years um and if you can if you don't mind sharing what the closest thing to a log line yes. just so people have an idea of what some of these were the feast this was i think about 2015 into 2016 uh, it's a play about cannibalism. <laughs> it's a, this play where uh, it's a dinner dinner party and everybody's just waiting for dinner to arrive. But at the same time, they're waiting for 
uh, the hostess's uh, husband to arrive. And over time, you realize that um, in this world uh, that this dinner party is happening, there's no meat. And they say it's okay, but they really would like to eat some meat. And then what they realize is that in their desperation for meat, uh, eventually when the hostess's uh, husband arrives at the dinner ta- at the dinner um, a little bit late, yes. uh, they just they eat him. Yes. <laughs> That's that play. Okay, that was one. First play, first, play I've, first play I've ever written. Beautiful. Yeah. Tom and Eliza, 2016. Uh, this, this play is about book burning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about this uh, uh, couple. Uh, and uh, the while the, uh, the, the husband is trying to write a book and failing deeply, deeply, the wife is a librarian who is uh, burning books and eventually libraries and becomes a bit of a revolutionary for uh, burning books. Yeah. <laughs> now that I believe at one point was intended to be your last play. Yes. However... 2019 going into 2020 and would have potentially gone longer had we not had a global pandemic mm-hmm. was Endlings. What about that So one? Endlings is about, um, there are these amazing uh, elderly uh, pearl divers in the southernmost islands of South, South Korea. And um, it's an art that is uh, dying. It's not an art. It's, it's, a, it's an industry that is dying because uh, now we can farm seafood. And, but before you could farm seafood, you actually needed uh, women to dive into the ocean to uh, get seafood out. So they would dive in and they'll pick octopus and they would do all that. So that's how you could get s- seafood. Um, and then, and because there's no uh, use in um, that particular work anymore, uh, their whole way of living was disappearing. So it's called endlings. Yeah. But the, the main part of it is that... Uh, as it is uh, disappearing, um, the the women are also like talking about how uh, they don't want this art to continue because it's so tough on their bodies too. Because uh, living in the ocean for that uh, that long a day per day uh, really makes them closer to marine animals than uh, than a person who walks. So when they're on land, their body hurts. So when they're underwater, their body is comfortable. So it's about how they're like, we don't want to make anybody else. uh, We don't want to make our daughters uh, do this work. Yeah. Now in that show, there is also a Korean Canadian playwright living in New York, married to a white husband who wears a placard that says white husband. So (laughs) that element, just as long as we're talking about experimental theater, uh, how did that connect with the Henyos? Yeah. Well, the the thing is that it, it was um, the, I was working on the the pages for where it was about these elderly women, and then I think that something that I noticed while that was happening was that how interested people were in those elderly women, and I felt really absurd living in uh, New York City as a playwright, one of the most expensive places on earth. Um, talking about and writing about these women who live in what, some of the most uh, worthless pieces of real estate possible. And I think that it really was about that contradiction. And it's about the way that uh, these two worlds actually coexist. Um, and uh, it's all also connected to uh, the way that uh, how I was feeling about theater 
where I felt like I was the, you know, like how so many of us in theater were feeling like we were an endling. Because you guys know what endling is? So endling is the last of a species. Sorry. Um, so it's like, what we mean by that is because almost all of them of one species has died, that there is only one left uh, and then that last one because it cannot procreate. We know that that's the last of it. And um, as that is happening, uh, you know, like you, that, that animal still has to continue living. Right. Um, so I think that that's something that I felt like was really connected to the way that, uh, you know, we were all we were all feeling in theater and also uh, the way that those henyas felt about their work. You know, they're the last of their kind. Yeah. Why for you were you it seems like growing away from the theater and also beginning to think about film was mm -hmm. I think from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Past Lives was, it could theoretically have been a play if you approached it in a certain way, but you always, seems like we're thinking of that as a film and in terms of moving towards film away from theater, what, what was the main thing kind of moving you in that direction? Well, I think that before film, I was actually, I actually staffed on a TV show. So, I mean, I think that should really say so much about like some of it was as simple as uh, financial. Right. Yeah. Because it was, how <laughs> it was how hard guy. was it? I mean, with like. <laughs> it, was, it was, we couldn't make money. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we did a whole, I would do a whole play in a city and it would be a premiere in that city and it'd be a, it'd be a wonderful production. I would love doing it, but it would, they would pay me $500 for the whole run. Right. You guys are shocked by this. This is this is real. This is what happens, <laughs> um, and it's like, and of course, but there's it's always mixed with like feeling of like, yeah, but it's amazing that this play gets done, you know. And I know that that theater cannot give me more, so it's not like they're hoarding it so that I can't get paid. They, it's what it's the kind of that's the kind of uh, business theater is. And I was so lucky. I felt so lucky that they were doing the play, and I was very grateful. But. Um, there was just no way that I could pay rent doing it. And yeah. so that's where, as you reference um, Wheel of Time, this Amazon show, you start on, I think, probably during early days of pandemic or even maybe before the pandemic? I did it before. Okay. I was doing it as uh, Endlings was actually being performed in Boston. Okay. Um, that's when I was uh, doing it. And while I was a staff writer on, on uh, Wheel of Time is when I wrote Past Lives too. Yeah. So it kind of happened at the... Similar. And also, and then just one thing I have to note, because I think it shows that even lockdown could not repress creativity. <laughs> Can you share, this one is still hard to wrap my head around. What was your, can you describe your interpretation of Chekhov's The Seagull. Yeah. Um, so um, during the pandemic, uh, my theater that was doing uh, Endlings and we had to shut down after we opened. So we, so Endlings, the New York premiere opened uh, March 9th, 2020. I know. And then two days later, we had to shut down. Um, and I think that when that was happening, I was so heartbroken, mainly because, as you know, so because the play was about Henya, it was about like elderly uh, Asian American women. And I think that I knew that some of them were uh, maybe not when the play comes back on, maybe they won't get to do the play again. So I think that to me was the most heartbreaking thing because their work was so beautiful 
And I just was so upset that not enough people were going to get to see it. But then I realized that we had to shut down because COVID was real. Um, which at the time I was like, this is not real. It's a cold, you know. And then I was like, oh, no, no, it is real. I'm so sorry. <laughs> people are dying. Um, so, I mean, which I think is a kind of a journey that a lot of us went through, right? We're like, I think we're like, how serious is this? And then you're like, oh, wow, it's, a, it's very serious. Um but so I think while well, that was happening, uh, and then once that happened, the theater uh, the, that was doing the New York uh, premiere, uh, they asked me if I wanted to do a play, a, a virtual play. And I was like, I would like to not do a Zoom play <laughs> um, because I had seen some of them and I just could see what the challenges were because it was just like, it's technically just, it's just so challenging. And I was like, I would like to not do that. And as I was saying, explaining why I wouldn't want to do a Zoom play, I I started to pitch them this idea because because I was watching a lot of, of video game streams, you know, I was watching a lot of streamers because of the lockdown. So because of that, I actually told them that I would like to do a Twitch stream of uh, me playing Sims 4 <laughs> of... <laughs> playing Sims 4 and doing a performance of uh, The Seagull, <laughs> and I, of The Seagull, the Chekhov play. And it, the reason why, I mean, the reason why it's The Seagull and why it's Chekhov is because I always felt that uh, Sims 4 was a very Chekhovian video game, <laughs> right? Because it's about living. It's about the pain of living, right? It's about like, I guess I have to go to the bathroom, you know? <laughs> I woke up today and I just have to eat something. Like it's very, you know. So I think because of that, I was like, well, I always felt like it was Chekhovian, so I should do a Chekhov play. And then um, The Seagull is my favorite play of Chekhov's. And also there is an amazing piece of dialogue about new forms. And I think that really interested me. So I, I don't know, as I was explaining that I was going to do it, I actually formulated it as I was talking about it. <laughs> and then uh, I was going to be two nights uh, and I did it for four hours uh, each. So it was a little bit of a durational performance. Um, and what I really loved best was that there were in the audience, which is the, of course the viewers, the, the audience was uh, people who don't know Chekhov, but only know video games, <laughs> people who only know Chekhov and don't know video games. <laughs> And people like me who know both oh. Chekhov and video games. And it was such an amazing thing because it resulted in so many questions and a lot of memes and a lot of really good jokes in the chat, the chat stream. There were so many good jokes. It's <laughs> like the, those, those, the chat streams were like, that was the art of it because there were so many, uh, you know, a lot of dramaturgy and a lot of Chekhovian jokes about <laughs> and it was so good. It was, yeah. It and was parallel fun. to this enterprise was the development of past lives. And so because it's such a rare treat to get to have, you know, a filmmaker as relatively close in age as you are to the students, because the goal of everyone, uh, I think, is to get that first film under their belt. I wonder if we can just break down the the process a bit of how this came about. So, I mean, writing starts on the page. If you don't have that, not going anywhere. You had this, I guess you're thinking, what is the story that I can maybe, uh, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. How did you decide that the story you wanted to build your first 
screenplay around was the one that you did and how close to real events was that screenplay? Obviously we've talked about their elements, but I mean, we don't necessarily know your, your whole story. So just, yeah. I'll leave there. Well, I think that, you know, it really did happen for me, this, I, the idea for the film, it was the inspiration all happened from this one actual moment in my own life. Uh, and it was that I was sitting in this bar in East Village in New York City, sitting between my child friend who had come to visit me from Korea and my husband that I live with uh, in New York City. And I was translating between uh, these two people in culture and language. And also I realized that I was translating between parts of my own self and my own history. And I was becoming a bit of a bridge and a portal between those two things. And I think that there, it was the feeling was so uh, powerful because it felt like my, my past, the present and the future were all sitting in the room at the same time having a drink. So it was such a special feeling. And uh, I was looking around the bar and just feeling like, uh, and I also made co eye contact with other people in the bar and they were all trying to figure out who we were to each other. <laughs> and the feeling I had was I was like, my God, like I wonder if they have any idea how strange, how completely extraordinary this feeling is to sit here, you know, uh, with these two people and to translate between them, knowing that each of them hold a key to my story that the other person doesn't have. And they're both so dear to me. So I think in that way, that was the, uh, the, the feeling that I, that I was sort of like uh, left with that night. And then it kind of ended up on what I would call my maybe pile of maybe things to work on. Maybe that's the thing I'm going to work on kind of a thing. And then uh, I think that from that maybe pile, it started to nag me a little bit about maybe this is something that I need to actually properly work on. But the thing that I didn't know was that, well, this is, feels really special to me, but it's going to feel special to anybody else. And something that I did was I actually went and uh, I went and told the story of this night to uh, a lot of my friends, like a few, you know, a handful of my friends. And I would just tell them about it, like how these two, how I ended up at this place and what it felt like. And I realized that no matter where my friends that I'm talking, telling them this about, uh, where, what their background is, it doesn't matter because they all had a story to tell me. And we actually became better friends because of this story that I told them. And I think that those are the things that encouraged me to be like, okay, maybe I should try uh, writing it. And then I feel like when I was trying to write it, something that I ran into is that, you know, the script I knew had to be bilingual because the story is about bilingualism. And I mean that, you know, even bigger sense than just language. It's about uh, two different worlds. So it's a bilingualism in its biggest sense. So it... So, you know, like a really important scene, for example, is when Hesong and Arthur meet each other for the first time in that apartment. And the first thing that happens, you're like, anything could happen. We were shooting that scene like it should be a Western, right? But we were like, anything could happen to Hesong and Arthur when they meet each other. But the first thing that's going to happen is that Arthur is going to say hi to Hesong in Korean, which is so beautiful. And then Hesong is going to say hello to Arthur in English, which is also beautiful. And it's beautiful because... It, they're they're bad at the language, right? Because Arthur is saying hi in bad Korean and Hesung is saying hello in bad English. And 
that's where the whole movie lives. That's what the story is about. So I knew it needed to be bilingual. But then uh, I realized that final draft doesn't support uh, any other alphabet but English, right? And this is my first script that I'm writing, uh, first uh, movie, movie I'm writing. And when you run into that barrier, you kind of get a sense that this is just not what the industry wants from you. Right? which is a feeling that you're like, oh, they don't actually want a story like this. They don't want a bilingual story. And I think that that always feels like a kind of implicit way to make sure that you don't write the thing, right? And But I think that, thankfully, as we've gone through, the 10 years that I spent in theater, you know, getting paid $500 for things that, you know, people maybe not do, won't do the play, I feel like it... Uh, Part of it is it makes me, it made me very bold in that I could just say, you know what, fuck it, I'll just write it <laughs> and just hope that it goes well, you know? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so this, the, this was also, I was also writing it before uh, Parasite opened that amazing conversation about subtitles, you know, what, what Pong, director Pong Juno was talking about with the subtitles. Like this was before that. So there was a very... Uh, there was a very real feeling that, well, is audience going to be okay with subtitles? And I was like, yeah, but the subtitle is like a part of the picture, right? So I need it. So I think that that was sort of the thing that I was feeling. But I think there was a part of it that I just said, like, you know, screw it. I just have to do it. And, and I think that that was the uh, writing of the script. Was oh. there ever a time when past lives could have been, in your mind, a play? And then what tipped the scales to it being film because I know there were some very specific reasons that you you shared on our writer roundtable and I think it's really interesting because it you, you know you're taking a leap to write your I don't even know like did you get books about how to write a screenplay like it that's a whole different ball game than what you'd been doing up to that point um I, I always thought it would be a screenplay because I knew that the story had to uh, be really rooted in uh, visual and sonic uh, representation of these two cities and these two times in a person's life. So what I mean by that is that, you know, the the joke I often make is the villain of the story is Pacific Ocean and 24 years. So in that way, we actually need to see quite literally the contradiction of identity, contradiction of our lives, which is, you know, Seoul and New York City are different cities, but at times they feel they feel the same, but they coexist in all these characters, right? And so the same thing when it comes to the 12-year-old girl who's playing Nora and then the 40-year-old woman who's playing Nora, right? They have to occupy the same space and time for us to understand the story. So I always knew that it had to be told cinematically. So it was fundamentally a cinematic story um, in that... Uh, when you, I just needed that flashback between flash from the 12 year old girl and then the four year old woman. And those two people, uh, in a way that's completely contradictory, coexisting. Right. So I think that's really the, uh, the impetus behind it being a, a screenplay. I mean, my thing is like, this is sort of the thing that I, this is very deeply the thing that I believe, which is that, uh, reading books on screenplay is a way to procrastinate uh, from uh, actually writing a screenplay. <laughs> Sorry. 
you know, I know we have to sometimes read it. For, I'm, I don't know if you guys have to read it for class, but I find it to be that because I think that unfortunately uh, there's only one way to get better at writing, which is to keep doing it. And I really wish there was a better uh, way. <laughs> if it, and by the way, if someone founds, finds a better way, let me know because, <laughs> because I think that there's just nothing you can do about it except that you just have to uh, write a lot and be, be bad a lot. Uh, that's the thing too. You just have to allow yourself uh, so much room for failure and so much room for a lot of bad writing. And what's amazing about uh, bad writing is that you don't have to show it to anyone, right? So you can do it in secret. You can do a lot of bad writing in secret. And then when you feel like it's a little bit better than bad, then maybe you show it to people and you learn that it's bad again. <laughs> and then you, And then you go back ashamed and then you write more based on what you learn from the bad writing you accidentally show people right <laughs> so some of so much of it is about uh falling over and getting up and falling over and getting up and falling over and getting up and i think that's uh uh the courage to do that is going to be the only thing that's going to make you uh better at it to me i'm like i have never met a book that made me a better writer what has helped is like you know the you know, there not there like um, Save the Cat? Save the Cat? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Even, I'm sure you guys know all the books. But you know how there's that amazing chart? Like that little list of like all the different beats with a, with a dark night of the soul or whatever. Like that, that thing. I feel like reading that once was really nice. Okay. That was good. Okay. That was helpful. <laughs> because just to be like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, whatever the rules is, like page five needs to do this. And I'm like, huh. I should go and look at my page five and, oh, okay, kind of kind of does it. Or like maybe it doesn't do it. Maybe I should try to do it. Like I think that that was the only time that I think that a book was actually uh, helpful, helpful to me. Yeah. How about another movie? Did you have any other movies in your mind when you were writing this? Obviously, it's very personal story, but the, at, at the same time, there are, you know, people flashback to movies that have meant a lot to them and then move them about similar, you know, sort of, sort of aspects, whether it's a brief encounter or the before, the before trilogy or things like just any of those, any others on your, in your mind when you're writing? I think that, I think that I was watching a lot of movies, mm -hmm. but I think ultimately uh, the structure of the thing to me is too fundamental a part of the work for me to emulate anybody else's structure. Like, I feel like that's one of the only, one of the main things that I feel very, very protective about, which is my own uh, sense of structure. And I think what I mean by that is also my own sense of rhythm, right? My own sense of how a story should move, which is, I think, the unique to every single person. Like, I believe that. So let's say, like, you know, like, I want everybody in here to uh, rewrite past lives, right? And my thing is, like, I just know that, I'm going to have, I don't know how many people are here. I'm going to have as many number as uh, people who are here's a version of how uh, past lives can get written. And it's not because of anything except that everybody's going to show up with a different sense of music, basically. Because I believe that uh, a movie is a piece of music that has to move like a piece of music. And how long a shot is, for example, is, is, uh, is about how long the note is for example. So I think in that way, um, you know, what to me feels like that's the right moment to move on to the next shot, right? Maybe if I'm asking one of you and you guys will say, no, 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 I would have stayed there longer. 
So in that way, the structure of the thing is so sacred to what I'm what I mean when I say my voice as a filmmaker that I don't know if I could emulate another filmmaker's rhythm. Right. But I think that when it comes to how a certain moment is put together, you know, like I feel like those are the kind of things that I was pulling so much from uh, other films. Like a movie that I'm asked everybody to watch and I, I watched as well is uh, My Dinner with Andre. Because My Dinner with Andre is an, an entire, it's an, um, it's an entire film where it has every possible way of shooting a din- dinner conversation, right? Every kind of a way to shoot a, a conversation uh, between friends, I think that it has done because it has to do it for so long in that film. And that's all it has, really. So in that way, uh, you go in there and you just really treat it. I was treating it like very much as a toolbox of some kind. And something that I knew that I wanted to grab from it is uh, the way that uh, the conversation starts in shallow waters. And over time, you don't even realize that you're getting deeper and deeper. And at the end of it, you just realize you're in the dead middle of the ocean and you're drowning. Right. And that's sort of the way that some of the conversations in uh, my dinner with Andre goes. So it will sort of start out just being kind of a light, almost like a fun conversation. And at one point you will not notice when we got there, but it will suddenly feel like, oh, we're in a deep place. When do we get here? Right. So, for example, in uh, past lives, uh, in the final scene in the bar, Hesong says this line, I didn't uh, think that liking your husband would hurt this much, right? And of course, that's the line that opens up the rest of the uh, conversation. It is a tremendously important uh, line just to unlock how deep this conversation goes. But what happens is that in that, you could shoot that in a way where you're like, it's time for that line to come. <laughs> Everybody ready for the big line? <laughs> Music swells. The actors turning and looking at the camera. Like there's a way to play it that way where you are really pr- preparing the audience for the big line to come. Or the way that uh, my dinner with Andre does it and then the way I wanted, I wanted to do it uh, in the film is for that question, for, for that statement that opens up the rest of the conversation, that really important line to happen as though it's not different at all from the line that came before. And only at the end of that line, do you realize the significance of that line, right? So it has to feel like completely effortless, like it's like a poison that just goes, right? And then it's, and then we're like, oh shit, we're in the middle of the ocean now. How are we going to get out, right? So I think that um, in that way, that's that would be the kind of the way that I would look at uh, other filmmakers. Yeah, that's too. really interesting. One last writing question before I go on to other parts of the process. But um, Inyun, yeah. was that something that you'd known and thought about your whole life and then saw that it fit here? Or was it something where you've written this and you see kind of after the fact that that is something that could be applied to what you're writing about, I guess, does that make sense? Just bef- what well, came first? It is it a concept that yeah. uh, because I grew up partly in uh, Korean culture is sort of like an everyday thing. And that's an amazing thing about that word. In Korea, you will hear the word inyan like five times a day, you know, because it is just a natural part of how we 
uh, how people interact. Like you'll be like at the end of this conversation, if you're in Korea and we're Koreans, I would just be like, "Ah, oh, night. That was a wonderful Iyan. Good night." Right? <laughs> you'll be that casual. Or and it, and it's also true what Nora says in the film. Like it's very it's one of the easiest ways to hate on someone. You know, to be like. <laughs> It must be Inyan. Can I have your number? You know. <laughs> oh, oh my God! This. Oh my God! We bumped into each other. What an Inyan. Can I have your number? So I think it's like it's it's it can be something that is that every day. So that's the relationship that I had to it. Um, but I think that the film, uh, the it really had to do with the question that is posed in the beginning of the film, which is who are these people to each other. And uh, by asking the audience who are these people to each other, what I'm asking them, the the what I'm asking the audience to become are detectives to a mystery story, right? I'm asking the audience to feel implicated in the story and to sort of uh, come along on this journey with this question in mind, which is who are these three people to each other? And the answer is as mysterious as the question itself. It's a, it's probably more mysterious than the question. And the answer is that, well, the three of them are Inyan, right? Because uh, if you were to really ask who is like Hesung and Nora to each other, they're not really exes, right? And they're friends, but I think the friends uh, hang out more. Like I think friends like know each other a little better, but they're not strangers because when they see each other, they feel like home. So how could that be you know, any of that? So in that way, they are Inyan. And that's the, maybe the best way to describe it. And similar thing for Hesung and Arthur, right? When they see each other, they're also able to see and, you know, say like, oh my God, you and I are, uh, you know, they're not friends, but they're not enemies. They're certainly not treating each other like one. And, but they're not strangers either because they're connected to each other through this woman. So they're Inyan as well. So I think that it really was about answering that question. Because that was the only word that I could think of to answer the question, who are they to each other? But I realized then, of course, that uh, most audiences for this film won't know what Inyan is because it's not only for a Korean audience. So I was like, okay, we just got to explain what Inyan is earlier in the film <laughs> so that everybody knows from that moment on what Inyan is so that they understand it. So what's the easiest, it's the easiest trick in the book, you guys, <laughs> the books that I don't read, but you know, <laughs> the easiest trick, which is that have a character who doesn't know what it is, listen to the character who does know what it is <laughs> and, um, and try to be funny while you do it. Right. right? <laughs> so I think that that is sort of the solution to that, which is that like, well, and now once you've heard that explanation and once you know that that explanation is, is meaningful and it means something to the characters, then for the rest of the film, the audience also moves forward with the knowledge of this word, with the wisdom of, wisdom of this word. Yeah. Right. So as a first time filmmaker, it helps to have a great story, well-written, it also helps to have a producer, producers who really believe in what you're doing and know what they're doing, right? Um, for you, this started in one place, I think Scott Rudin, right? And ends up with Christine Vachon and her company, Killer Films. But this is somebody who has been making indie films, particularly in New York, forever. And, you know, just great films, far from having Carol, on and on and on. Um, how did, can you connect the dots from how you get your script first to Rudin, then to Christine? And then, cause I mean, you've said this really couldn't have happened without 
the support and experience and um, kind of backing of great producers. Well, I think that the that is uh, without question because the thing that I lack as a first-time filmmaker is experience. So I'm looking for somebody who can come in and uh, fill in for the experience and expand my experience so that I can ha I have so much experience to pull from. So I knew that I needed uh, producers who were tremendously experienced in that way because I just knew that that was going to uh, make me feel safe, but also it was going to make the studio feel safe yeah. <laughs> because the thing is the uh none of this kind of uh, amazing support could have happened without uh a24 right and a24 being uh very very first film uh supporting kind of a studio because not least with people from theater they did annie baker's first they did jeremy o'harris right so how early on did they get involved how did that how did they get involved? Uh, right away so yeah, you write yeah. the script and it goes to them first? It goes to them at the same time as we're sharing it with uh, producers, okay. right? And it's because we're hoping that it all ends up there. What we're hoping is for it to end up at A24. Right. Because the thing is that they are uh, probably one of the most uh, ris risk uh, welcoming uh, studios that exist, right. right? And they feel very comfortable taking a chance on stories and people that have not been tested before, that have not been uh, there before, right? It does mean that, um, of course, uh, the the kind of their amazing risk taking, of course, comes with its own, like a you know, like indie independent film kind of a uh, you know the things that you run into as an independent studio, right? As opposed to like having a really, really firm structure and everything. So much of it actually has to go through the the ingenious and then the work of the producers. As in like, I rely so much more on the producers than I might if I'm working in a traditional studio system, for example. So, yeah. So are they the ones then who say, we want to bet on Celine and we are going to, we are going to connect you with at one point, Arudin, at one point, Christine, are they the matchmakers? Well, I think that I, the, the script is a matchmaker, yeah. right? Yeah, it's yeah. more like who comes to uh, want to do the script. And the, of course, there's an amazing moment where the producers want to uh, work with you because they fall in love with the script. Right. And uh, I think that that was the uh, part of the story that I know is not always uh, the case. But in my case, it was very much that like I had a script um, the producer read it and then they wanted to do it. And it was as simple as that. And then at the same time, A24 was reading it and they were like, any time that you uh, want to go ahead with it, let's do it. Yeah. Then there's the casting process, of course, where, so Greta Lee, who popped big time from this, we've seen her in other things from Russian Doll through now Morning Show. But this was, you know, She's not necessarily, uh, at the time you're casting, like uh, a household name, a bankable name, anything like that. And in fact, you initially, it sounds like, met with her and then went in another direction. Oh, I never went with her. I Even only, only saw her tape. Oh, you saw her on tape. Her on tape, yeah. How did it first bypass her and then come back around to her? Well, I think that, you know, uh, casting process is always... And I'm just learning from my other project, my my second project as well, which is that, you know, it's casting process is always a, a process of learning to trust your own self, um, 
which is always difficult, but you have to, you have to do it. Uh, but I think that, you know, first time, I mean, the, all my, my actors, uh, Teo and Greta, both of them just taped for me. They're one of like, you know, hundreds of tapes that we got, um, for these roles. And I saw Greta's tape and I loved her tape. But, uh, at the time that I was going to, uh, work with an actor who, for Hesong, um, who just, uh, didn't feel like the right match for her. And it was just a matter of chemistry. It's a matter of uh, where they are in their in their life. It was a little bit of that. And I think that it, because of that, um, she uh, was ruled out just in a simple way of like, well, she's not right for this uh, this male actor who was about to play Hesong. And then you know, you know, COVID movie gods, things like that. They say like, well, he's not going to be your Hesong. And I'm like, okay. Um, so actually, so what is going to be then the first step for the casting for this film? And actually the first uh, step that I, I realized is to uh, cast Honora. So then I went to the sort of the blank slate of feeling like, okay, it doesn't matter uh, who it is. It's like, who is the right Nora for this uh, for this film. And I think that Greta was the first thought. So she was actually the first thought in that way. And I wanted to meet her right away. And I met her. And I think this is the other side. I feel like, I mean, you guys are going to be in a situation where you guys are casting all the time. And I wish that there was an amazing uh, trick or a, a, or a thing that uh, I could tell you that was is going to be helpful to you. But the truth is that it is just like falling in love, where you just like, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Sometimes somebody just walks in and then you just know that that person's the right person, right? And it's really like, and it you can't ever go with the person who uh, feels right in a way that of uh, the marketing or something, you know, like some other impure reason for uh, why that person is right for that role. And I think that the question is always about staying pure to what you know about the character and what you need that character, who who you need that person uh, to be for that character. So I think that uh, in that way, you have to approach it like you're falling in love, where you have to meet them and you're like, oh, maybe this is the person. Maybe Inyun. This is the person. Inyun, exactly. <laughs> you're like, Inyun, oh, maybe this is the one. I don't know. And then I think that, and this is how I am in love, which is that I test them. Right. <laughs> I test them. I test them. I go like, okay, so I feel like this is the right person. Let's see if they really are, you know? And then you ask questions, you ask them to do the scene, you, uh, you talk to them and then you just try to see if this actually is the right person for it. So I auditioned both Greta and Teo, uh, separately for over three hours, you know? And of course, like, I feel like by the third hour, I think both of them had a feeling that I was going to cast them. Right. But I think that in that conversation, it's like, well, you're about to get into a very deep and intimate relationship with them because you're about to make a movie with them yeah. and you're going to be seeing them for 12 hours a day. And then you're going to see them uh, in the edit for another, you know, weeks and weeks of 12 hours a day. So you have to be in love with them. Right. And you have to just believe that this is the only person who could play this role. And there's no way to know that except for the there's nobody who knows that except for the director. Right. The writer and the director, I think, because I feel like they're the only ones who's going to actually understand what the character needs to be. Right. So I think that that's really the uh, best way to describe it. You just have to trust your uh, trust what you know about the character and trust what you see in the actor who shows up for you. Yeah. 
So we recently had on the podcast Michelle Satter, who runs the Sundance Institute and just got an honorary Oscar as well. Um, and she said that the number one kind of intimidating thing or fear for first-time filmmakers who she works with are how to direct actors. Now, you are perhaps a, a different case than most that she deals with because of the fact that you had a lot of background in theater. But how does one learn how to direct actors for film? Did you feel also that that was an intimidating part of the process? In a way, I found it to be uh, easier than actually working with actors in theater um, because, uh, and this is the metaphor I've used before, where I think that for uh, theater acting, it is so much about uh, building the machine that these actors are going to uh, run every night. So it's actually about consistency. So my metaphor for it is that, you know, theater acting is like Buddhism where it's about going to the temple. I don't know if you guys know Buddhism very well, but in Buddhism, you have to go to the temple every day for 108 days and bow uh, for 108 times for you to get one of those beads that shows that you're a really good Buddhist, right? Actually, I don't know about the 108 days of going there, but it's like a month, every month that you go and then you bow 108 days. So it's about showing up every day. So you, it's not really a matter of like, were you the best on this day or were you the worst on this day? It's about, no, 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 you were great every single day. And maybe one day was a little better and the other day was not, but it was, it's about uh, being there every day. So it doesn't matter that you get a transcendental performance one night because what's more important is for that actor to be able to do it again the next day. So it's always very difficult to keep the actors from doing a really alive performance because if you're Hamlet, you know, every night you die. How do you die? Like it's the first time you've ever died. Oh, sorry, spoiler <laughs> Hamlet dies. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so Hamlet dies. And at the end, you're always like, you know, like the actor who's playing Hamlet, if you're a great theater actor, you need to be able to die like it's the first time you have ever died in front of an entire audience that already knows that Hamlet's going to die. Right. So it's the magic of that. It's the power of that. In film acting, I would call it uh, Christianity. You know, that'll be my metaphor for it, <laughs> because you can screw around all week <laughs> as long as you show up on Sunday. <laughs> and you <laughs> as long as you show up on Sunday and you, uh, you know, and then you, you know, like give money, you do all the things that you need to do. You're like, say you're super sorry about everything you've done all week. <laughs> you are a great Christian, right? I mean, I'm, sh I'm sure there are actual Christians in here who are like, wow, Celine, you're very offensive. Okay. But, um, but I think that to me, it's like, it's like thing where it's like in, in screen uh, acting, it's completely okay for you to be, uh, not as good as the one take that's going to end up in the movie, right? So you can be like, you can have five takes that are not working. And then the sixth take, you're like, you're transcendental. And like, as a director, I can just say like, I have it. So let's just do one for safety and then we'll be done, right? <laughs> so I think that it's really about getting to that one that you know is going to end up in the film, right? So in that way, it's not a matter of, no, 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 you have uh, 20 weeks where every week you have to do eight performances and every single performance has to be really good, right? Really good. And hopefully, if you're a great theater act actor, uh, great. Every day has to be great. And that's a much harder thing to build, I feel, than I think that when it comes to screen acting, where it's like, actually, 
uh, it's about capturing the magic of the one really alive moment that this performance is. So if you need the Hamlet to die once in film, then you just have to uh, achieve the feeling of aliveness in the, in the death of Hamlet, right? And how you put that together, how you cut it together, and how you get the performance from the actors. I think so much of it is about the uh, trust that it's like, no, no, I just know that if you try this and this and this, we're going to get to that performance that's going to end up in the movie. But so, that's where you, I mean, for a person who had not made a film before, according to your actors, did some really interesting things like having uh, some of the actors not ever, even though they're around each other, they cannot touch until they touch in the film. Or m even more interestingly to me, John Magaro's character and Teo Yu's character did not meet until they meet as characters in the film. You had, you went to great lengths to make sure that that was when they actually first see each right? Those are things that I don't know that everybody would think to do. Was that, do you attribute that to? Well, that's, yeah, please. And that's connected to what we're just talking yeah. about, right? Because I think that's exactly the thing. It's that I feel like uh, if you don't have to, because, uh, uh, in theater, I and I feel like the reason why I knew that I I would like to do that is is because I knew uh, what is difficult about theater acting, which is that every night the performance lives and dies, and then the next day it has to come back to life and then live and die again. What if you never had to kill that uh, kill the performance? Maybe you never maybe never has to die. Maybe it can stay alive every time. And the way that it can happen is by creating an environment where making sure that the performance is alive is easier to achieve, right? Because the thing is, this movie doesn't have special effects or costumes or anything to really help the actors. All that is happening is uh, the sunrise and the sunset of the actors of actors' faces, right? All you're doing is you're staring at the actors' faces and what lives and dies in the face is what's in the film. So because of that, it was it felt always felt worth it to go the extraordinary length to uh, make sure that the actors were ex exceptionally supported in bringing out the uh, living performance. So when Hesung and Arthur didn't meet each other in person and then when they saw each other for the first time, something that uh, happened was that for them, the the imagined person that the other guy was collapsed and the actual person was there to replace it. And then for every take after that, that feeling of the collapse that they were able to replicate right away. So similarly to when uh, Hesung and Nora weren't able to touch and then they were uh, hugging for the first time. Well, that's a kind of a, a thing that uh, that makes sense for the character's experience because in the, in the film, the characters, Hesung and Nora, they only have ever had a physical interaction with the other person as children. But 24 year years later, they're both grown adult and other adult uh, men and women. So in a way, this is the first time that these yeah. characters are uh, hugging each other right. because they're not kids anymore. So I think in that way, um, it just felt like it was a completely a worthwhile uh, exercise to have the actors not touch because the longing that was being built in the actors naturally, because actors are, you know, and all, most of us who are in, uh, in theater, this is very real, where it's like, we like hugging, we like walking around, blinking arms, we like 
you know, you know, you know, giving each other pets yeah. and stuff. And I think that by just telling these two actors who are, of course, who feel a lot of affection for their co-star being like, hey, there is, uh, you cannot touch each other, right? There was a kind of a natural longing that started to get built between Greta and Teo. And they, every time they would have to say goodbye to each other after the day, they would be like, I wish I could hug you, but I can't. <laughs> and they'll wave, right? And there's something about that where that tension then, of course, builds um, in a way that like anytime that you're told that you can't have something, you can't do something, that is going to then uh, become a thing that you all, all, that's all you want to do. So in that scene, and because they knew that the hug was coming, you could just you could just feel all, all, both of them walking on set being like, today is finally the day that <laughs> we can hug each other, you know? And that energy is what you see on screen. Last couple things from me, last couple of minutes, and then we're going to turn it over to student questions. But a couple of things that I feel like we just have to note. One of them, this blew my mind when I heard you talk about this at our roundtable. The f crazy, powerful, moving final scene in terms of on the scene as Hyson and Nora are parting. Can you just talk about how you arrived? It was very deliberate. I know finding the street, you've built up all this emotion in the story, but the blocking, the, the movement of the camera in that, there, there are no accidents there. Can you break that down? Because I don't think for most of us it's a conscious thing that we're thinking about when we're watching it, but it, you gave it a lot of thought. Totally. I mean, so uh, finding those sh the street itself was such a, a journey because I knew that the, my instruction to the location managers and uh, my location managers was on a contradictory one because I had said to them, said to him, uh, the street has to be a completely ordinary street that is like a, your neighborhood street that a tourist would not be able to notice. I was sharing this movie with an audience in Paris and I was just telling them and they understood it completely, which is that like, well, I don't think if I asked an actual person who lives in Paris what, what their Paris is, they wouldn't say Eiffel Tower, right? They'll talk about the little cafe around the corner. They'll talk about the street they used to live on. And that's true about all the cities that we live in. Like, I don't think that any of us here, if we say like, well, what's your LA? I don't think anybody's going to say the, the Getty, right? It's like, that's not really, I think that you'll be like, no, it's just this coffee shop and this place where I used to park my car. Like, so my thing is like, you kind of want the, that street to feel like it's a New York, uh, a New York street for New Yorkers. So it needed to be completely ordinary, but also it needed to be, you know, Ending of the ending of the film, a beautiful street, a perfect street, extraordinary street, a street that speaks to the whole film, right? So my location manager and my DP uh, walked around uh, every night for like weeks to find that street. And I remember when my DP called me and said, "Hey, Celine, I think I found the street," and I was like, "I freaking believe you." <laughs> and I went and I looked and I was like, "This is the freaking street. It's amazing," you know, and. If, I think we were just looking at it and we we're talking about how long the track has to be because we wanted to lay track and it ended up being 150 feet. And I know. So we were talking about, we're laying this, we're talking about the track. We're talking about like, you know, it's all these like technical things. And there was a question that my DP asked, which was a practical question and a technical question that um, ended up unlocking the visual language of the whole movie, which is that he asked me which direction is Nora and Hesong walking to go to the Uber and which way is Nora walking home? And it, it came to me 
immediately because it was so obvious in that way. Because, of course, if you were to treat that line as a the horizontal line as a timeline, Nora and Hezong have to walk from right to left, walking to the past. And they have to dwell there in that spot for two minutes, in this moment in the past, right? And uh, the and the, when we see the flashback there, right? When we to the childhood, and when we see that childhood, something that I knew that, um, and this was, I think, my production designer's idea, where I knew that something about that flashback needed to feel different than the when the two children actually said goodbye in the earlier part of the film. And uh, they, uh, and something that we did there is to, we uh, lit that scene in the dark in the same time as when this walk home is happening. Because what we're trying to imply is that uh, this is the, uh, these two kids have been waiting to get their goodbye for 24 years, right? So that's why it's lit in the dark. And so they have that scene we're closer up and then the Uber comes and Uber takes Hezong and drives him into the past, right? And then Nora stands there for one minute. And by the way, this is another thing where the, the movie gods really took care of us because there was a little piece of wind. We didn't have a wind machine, which I couldn't believe, but there was a little piece of wind that magically showed up and started to blow her skirt and it actually started to blow her skirt in the direction that it can only be blown, which is towards the past, right? And Nora stands there for a second and then she turns and she starts walking from uh, left to right, right? In the direction of uh, the present and the future, right? And at the end of it, she goes home and the home, that's where uh, Arthur is and they go home into uh, after this walk towards the present and the future. And then the very final shot of the film is uh, Arthur being driven away to JFK. And again, the direction of which way should he be driving away is also clear because uh, he should also get to move forward. He also, she should also get to uh, get driven from uh, left to right. So that when that got unlocked, and again, it was only unlocked because of my DP's, you know, just the practical question of which way should they be walking. Um, it actually then unlocked... Uh, the visual language for every horizontal line in the film. Because then every horizontal in the film, the answer would be that like, no, we actually have to uh, treat this like it's a timeline, right? Everything will be a timeline. Yeah. I think it's great. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last minute for me, if we could just do rapid fire, just sort of the first sentence or whatever that comes to this and then we're going to the students. But, did you show the film in advance to your childhood sweetheart and to your husband? And what were their reactions? Uh, my husband is, uh, he, he, he has, he's, he's seen it all very early, yeah. but uh, it's, the movie's not out in Korea. It's going to come out later, uh, early next month. So my husband, yeah, no, no, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I feel like we're in on the secret here. Um, okay. Premiered at Sundance in January, opened in theaters in June. Unbelievable critical response. Did very well commercially. Get into this award season. You win the Best Feature Gotham. Nominated for the Best Drama Picture Golden Globe and a bunch of stuff. Nominated now for the Best Feature Spirit Award. Oscar nominations, the picture and original screenplay we're talking about. Just um, what, in short, have you made of where this little movie has, has gone? Would you ever... 
have pictured with the first one to have this kind of a response. No, no. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I feel like every step of the way also like because part of the the power of it being uh, my first movie is that uh, I don't know enough, right? I don't know enough to even know what to expect. So there's a really amazing, powerful part of it where to not have expectation and to not know uh, what it could look like. I feel like every piece of it is you don't have entitlements about the next piece, right? You're always like so surprised and amazed about the next thing. And then you're like at a new event, you go to the Oscar nominee lunch and you're like, I don't know what this is. And then you go and you're like, oh my God, this is what it is. And then next thing happens. I'm like, oh my God. Like I, I usually sometimes, and then you're like, you were nominated for this. And I'm like, that's amazing. I don't even know what it yeah, is right, really, right. you know? So I think that there is a, uh, I don't know, there's power to uh, not knowing right. actually. It gives me a lot of energy. Yeah. If you were to add a chapter to the film 12 years from now, oh. from where they left, can you tease us of where you think these characters might be? I think they would just be living their lives, you know? It's about the finiteness of uh, these experiences in our lives. So I think that they just go back to uh, the lives that they were uh, meant to live. I think the only thing that's different is that in their souls that something got uh, unlocked. And you can't really see how different they are. Yeah. Lastly, I want to just ask you about what's coming up next, just both immediately. I know there's a project that has been kind of, it's out there that this is coming, but also do you see yourself going back and forth between film and theater, like uh, Martin McDonough or Sam Mendes or somebody, or are you now, have you closed the chapter and begun a different chapter and it's going to be film from here on out? Oh, it's going to be filmed from here on out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the next film will be, it's, 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 I heard a rom-com. I can't wait to make it, you guys. Okay. All right. Okay. I just can't wait to get behind the camera and then make this movie. And then I'll talk to you guys again. All right. Good. We'll We're going to talk about it again. Let's make this a tradition after each movie. Okay. Closing now with student questions. We have mics that are going around. Please say your name and a succinct question. Hi, uh, my name is Ben Kaplan. I'm a first year uh, MFA grad director. Uh, my question actually is about the screenplay, though. Um, this movie is based in part on something that actually happened to you. When writing a screenplay or anything that has such a personal connection and is based in this reality, how do you come to the conclusion on what to include and what not to include from real life versus like fact and fiction? Well, I think that there is the truth that you're trying to tell the story about. And then there are also uh, facts about, um, you know, what may have transpired in your own life and things like that. And my thing is like, for example, like I know that the goal is to make a, a romantic film. It's a romantic film. And I mean that not in the traditionally a romance as a genre, and a little bit more as a, uh, it's about the kind of the vastness of uh, our life and our love, right? Because I really believe that the most extraordinary thing to happen in our lives is is love. You know, that's the thing that can happen. So it's a movie about love. It's not about dating, but it's about love. And I think that uh, because of that, when I'm trying to turn this into a script, you know, the, the details of like, you know, how uh, I actually... Uh, felt about, you know, everyone and things like that. Like, I feel like those things are actually not as important as what the characters need to feel about it. 
So I think that it was it was not so uh, micromanagey as I think that it, it may it, it could be imagined. It was so much more about okay, I know how the movie begins with these three people, and I know where it's all gonna drive to, right? And the rest of it is so much about like okay, so what is the way that we're gonna get from point A to point B? And sometimes it's also about the including certain things and not including others, right? Because it's like the way the time moves, we don't know about what's happening with Nora in those, in, whenever there's a 12, hour, 12 year shift, we don't know what happened to those characters. We only learn about it when we're in the next thing. So I think that to me, the thing that can get we can get into when we're doing something autobiographical is to get caught up in the, in the part of it where it's like, well, this is how it felt like to me. Sometimes I'll realize that, well, how it felt like to me is not going to communicate as well as this thing that I know I can do this for this character, right? So I think that it is always going to be driven by, well, what is the, where is the audience, right? Where is the audience and is, are they going to understand it? Like there's some jokes about like theater and stuff that I used to have in the script that when I was editing it, I was like, nobody in the audience is going to understand this one. <laughs> so it's got to go, right? But those things are as dear to me as the some of the other details. So I think it's really about uh, finding the thing that you know that the all audience members are going to feel connected to, even in your own personal story. So I think that was always the anchoring thing. Yeah. Hi, <laughs> my name is Jackie. I'm a, a second year studying communications. This is Less of a serious question, but I realized that one of Hezong's friends, his name is Changgya. He's a very famous Korean musician. How did that come to be? And what was your experience like working with him? Uh, he auditioned for me. And I was a big fan of his, but I, he auditioned for me. And uh, of course, the, at, the audition, at the end of the audition, I knew that he wasn't going to be Hezong. But I was, I think I ended up asking him, he's like, but would you like to play another role? Sort of. Yeah. Nice. Hi, thank you so much for making such a wonderful movie technically and everything. Um, throughout the film, there's a lot of dialogue that's extremely concise and very realistic, but also it's still extremely dramatic. Was it very difficult to arrive at such efficient, I guess, dialogue that still moves along the story, um, but still kind of was dramatic in a sense? Or was that, uh, did it come easily to you? How, how was that process? Well, I think that that is a result of uh, working in theater for uh, over 10 years. Because I feel like something that's true about theater is that because it's live performance, sometimes the audience will miss a line that's really crucial. <laughs> so sometimes it's about actually the, uh, the conciseness or the way that it can really uh, go through. Like there's a part of it where, um, like propaganda or something, where it has to uh, communicate meaning uh, in a way that is uh, so so much more clear than I would say an ordinary human speech. So this is not kind of connected to the question that you were asking before, which is that um, well, if I was to be really autobiographical, most conversations are meandering, right? Most conversations are imprecise, and we mumble and we start to say something and we change our course. To me, the fantasy of the film, the fantasy of past lives, is that. Everybody is completely articulate and very deep and they're able to communicate the depth uh, on first try, right? <laughs> Which I don't think is actually possible. To me, I'm like, that's what makes it uh, cinematic or just what makes it cinema as opposed to uh, documentary 
or something, right? So I think in that way, that would always be my guiding thing, which is that like, well, we just have to get to the point ASAP and it has to be understandable, uh, translated in every language too. Yeah. Hi. I just, I wanted to first say thank you so much for coming out. I love this movie so much and I think it's so important and so special. Um, I was kind of just wondering why specifically did you decide to make these characters reunite at this point in their lives? Like why not 20 years down the line or maybe 10 years earlier? Why now? You mean like why 12 years? Yeah. And like yeah. why, uh, like, I don't know, like maybe Hesung, why not? Why didn't like Hesung like already have, still be with his partner or something? Like why these specific circumstances um, to have them meet? Um because of the, I mean, I, because of the dramatic potential of it, right? Because, the, and also the number of uh, like 12, if it's 20 years, it's almost as though it's inconsequential. Like it almost as though it doesn't matter that much that it happened 20 years ago. Like it loses the power of it being uh, recent enough. And if it's seven, it's like too close, right? So I think it's really about the kind of that uh, ambiguous space for it as well as like, I think that's the dramatic potential for it, which is that like the impossibility that is also met with potential. It is kind of that sweet spot in that way. So it's, it's a mechanical decision, yeah. Hello, uh, I'm Sean. I'm a first year uh, MFA cinematography student. Um, I second all the sentiments that have already been given to you about you and this film and being here. So thank you again for being here tonight. Um, your film just has a very incredibly unique visual style with its frame within a frames, with its long takes and its um, importance of wide shots. Uh, I was wondering uh, how much of this visual style did you think of from the offset when writing the script and how much came from collaboration with your team? And was there any like learning curve thinking visually for the screen compared to the stage? Um, I think that the it's interesting because I feel like when I met uh, Shabby Krishner, was my DP. The feeling that I had is like, this is the right person to make this movie with. And I met a lot of uh, wonderful DPs whose work I admire so much, but I knew that Shabir is the right person because he's the only person who tried to, who did not try to uh, dazzle me uh, with the technical, right? And it's okay. Or like uh, scare me or impress me with it, right? Which is okay because I wasn't going to get scared or impressed anyway. But um there was something about it where he was speaking to me in the language that I understand, which is story, character, philosophy, and how it needs to look. Like Shabby would never ask me like, what lens or something, right? He would always ask me, he'll be like, do you like this better? Right? What is this? What does this feel like? Is it, should we, should we get closer? Right? So I think it's really about the communication, right? Because the truth is that like, I knew uh, what felt right. I knew what looked right. And uh, over time, uh, the collaboration is about downloading to my whole team and not just Chabier, but to production designer, everyone, costume designer, um, everything that I know. And then they start to show me things that I couldn't even have imagined. And they also show me things that are perfect, like it's, it's came out of my dream. So I think that it is about uh, my continuous communication of what I know about it. And also the things that I don't know about it. Like, for example, Skype section, I remember going to my production designer and my DP and having this conversation and being like, I have no idea. I have no idea how to shoot that, right? 
you tell me how it's and they were like and the truth is like both of them they were like we have no idea either <laughs> right They're like, let's figure it out we'll find out so i think that there is such power in acknowledging the things that you don't know and i think that was a very important uh thing in it i would say that like there are certain things that i knew uh really well and then there are certain things that i really didn't know and then um, and you'd be surprised which is which, because you would think that the really difficult scenes or the scenes that you really remember as a big uh, cinematography scene or a big scene, those are actually much easier to know. And they, you figure those out a lot sooner than the scenes that like don't have as much meaning, like the scenes that you call shoe leather, like, you know, like the thing that is just supposed to be there because you need it. Those are the scenes where like me and my DP would sometimes go and be like, I don't know how we shoot this one because, right, because it comes to like walk home. We were like, we've been planning it for months. Like, you know, like, of course, the bar scene, we've been planning it for months. So we know exactly what we're doing. But the scene like, you know, like Nora looking at a laptop and being like, hello, are you there? Like <laughs> that scene, like we were like, we don't know where to put the camera really. Like we'll figure it out. Maybe this one. Eh, maybe this one. And so I think it's 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 funny because it's always the easier things that are actually harder to do, and then vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Celine. Um, Hi. I'm a second year student, um, and one thing that just really stands out. I mean, I, again, with everyone before, like love your film so much. I think it's like so one amazing, wonderful what you did with your team, um, but. Something that makes this movie stand out so much more to me than others in a similar kind of romantic genre is how it's almost like what you said earlier. You were talking about how much of it is like a bilingual movie, how like these people exist in two different worlds and like two different languages. And like in Spanish, there's a saying called bajo la misma luna, which is like no matter where you are, you're under the same moon, you know, like you're still in the same world. But how did you arrive to the conclusion that like that was the way you wanted to tell the story because I one of the shots I remember so much from your movie too is when they're talking in the Skype calls and it shows it's like a panning left shot of like Seoul Korea and then it cuts to a panning right shot of of uh, New York City just kind of in contrast I just thought that was so beautiful like how did you arrive to that sentiment and that idea um I think that uh I think the, the philosophy is always that it's like if it means something to you it's going to be something to someone else right so it, it will be worth worth doing if it's something that means a lot to you i feel like it's like the director's job and i think that of course before the director the, the writer's job it is to uh professionally care right it's about is you're a professional uh, passionate person and you're sort of the burning center of everybody else's caring so if i can't care about uh telling the story that hard, then it's going to be hard to convince anybody else, the hundreds of people who's working on the movie, to care half as much. You need everybody to care at least as half as much for the movie to get made. And if you are uh, passionate and you're able to communicate your passion, then in most cases, uh, people are going to want to match your passion in it. And I think that, you know, like that shot, for example, it's like, you know, like we knew that we needed to get that uh the, the two shots of the city and moving in that direction because we knew that it was about a different uh, time of day that they both live. So I think it's that. I think it's just a matter of like, well, what, what matters about it? And the person who has to have an answer what matters about every single shot is the director. 
the director has to know and director has to believe. And before that, the writer has to know and writer has to believe. Yeah. Selena, on behalf of everybody, we can't thank you enough for coming here and doing this. And thank you so, so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.